This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. Today we're going to talk about the Good Shepherd. We're right at the part of the Gospel of John where Jesus calls himself the Good Shepherd, and that does not mean he's a friendly farmhand, as we shall see. And we're right near the part of the Gospel, the other Gospels, where other sheep are referred to, so we'll talk about that too. So it's going to be all about the care and feeding of sheep today. Let's start in John chapter 10, verse 11 and following. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hireling and not a shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hireling and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. As the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will heed my voice. So there shall be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon, and he is mad. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the sayings of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Jesus is rejected by the Jews. It was the feast of the dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So the Jews gathered round him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness to me. But you do not believe, because you do not belong to my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. And there you have the story of the Good Shepherd from the Gospel of John. And it comes as kind of a surprise, perhaps, at the end. How come Jesus says he's a good shepherd, a friendly farmhand, carrying the hurt lambs, and that makes them want to kill him with stones? The first thing to point out here is that the Good Shepherd is not a friendly farmhand. We think of the Good Shepherd as the smiling Jesus with the lamb over his shoulders, this harmless, compassionate figure who nobody would object to because he's only here to help. We could not be more wrong. When Jesus claimed to be the good shepherd, the religious leaders picked up stones to kill him because what he was saying was a history-altering earthquake of an announcement 
that was subversive and adversarial to their very worldview. So a quick review. This is the continuation of the narrative of the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, that we've been following in the Gospel of John. We're still there until about halfway through what I just read. What we saw so far was that in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, Jesus cleanses the woman caught in adultery, cleanses her from sexual sin. In the Gospel of John, chapter 9, last episode, Jesus healed the man born blind, and the Pharisees, furious that this was done on the Sabbath, badgered him, saying, We know that God spoke to Moses, but we do not know where this one is from. The newly sighted man answered them, This is what is so amazing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he opened my eyes. Okay, well, there's a lot going on here. Jesus is giving sight to the blind like the Messiah is supposed to do, and the Pharisees want to know, Where is he from? Suggesting that there might be some kind of an answer that's different from simply Galilee. Jesus starts to answer them in chapter 9, but he answers them at length in chapter 10 by saying he's the good shepherd, and his sheep know his voice, and other would-be shepherds are strangers and robbers. And that, as the good shepherd, I lay down my life in order to take it up again. So he talks about being the good shepherd at the Feast of Tabernacles, but then there's a break in the reading, and John is suddenly telling us that it is winter, and Jesus is back at the temple for the Feast of Dedication. In other words, we switched from the Feast of Tabernacles to Hanukkah. When we return to the scene, it turns out that the Good Shepherd words really got under the Pharisees' skin, and they've been brooding over those words for months. And when Jesus picks up exactly where he left off weeks ago for them, telling them once again that his sheep hear his voice, they know exactly what he means, and they pick up stones again to kill him. So what exactly does he mean? Well, his words offended his Jewish audience because they knew the shepherd prophecies of the book of Ezekiel. They could tell that Jesus was comparing them to the shepherds in Ezekiel who, quotes, pastored themselves and did not pasture my sheep, leaving their sheep to, quotes, become food for wild beasts. They would also know that God himself was the good shepherd in Ezekiel, the one who said not only, quotes, the lost I will search out, the strays I will bring back, the injured I will bind up, and the sick I will heal. But also, quotes, I am coming against those shepherds, and I will judge between one sheep and another, between rams and goats. In other words, when the Jewish leaders questioned Jesus for healing the man born blind, he told them, I came into this world for judgment, and then proceeded to identify himself with the ultimate judge, depicted as the good shepherd in Ezekiel. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he is not saying, I am a friendly farmhand. He is saying, I am the great one here to oust you from your places, you thieves. So they gather around him three months later and say, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. It is at that climactic moment that Jesus reiterates again, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can take them out of my hand. These words make them so furious they pick up stones and are ready to kill him for blasphemy. They see in a flash what Jesus has done. He set them up to prove who he is. In the incident with the man born blind, their own words helped establish that Jesus has a voice more powerful than Moses and that he restores sight to the blind. 
Now he says that he is the divine shepherd who holds the world in his hand. But Jesus didn't only come to judge. He also came to gather. Jesus is continuing the revelation of who he is that shook the whole story up at Mark's midpoint, which, like the twist at the center of a movie, changed everything. Because in Ezekiel, the good shepherd doesn't just say he will judge. He also says he will bring other nations into the same flock as his chosen people, the Jews. Quote, I will lead them out from among the peoples and gather them upon the lands. I will bring them back to their own country and pasture them among the mountains of Israel. End quote. So Jesus is here putting the Jewish leaders on notice that there is a universal flock now. They are no longer the rulers of the one flock. He explains, I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. Those also I must lead, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock, one shepherd. So not only are they no longer the chief shepherds, but their status as chosen people is being changed. They are ready to kill him rather than capitulate on something this significant. Of course, later he will allow them to kill him for it. He will lay down his life for his sheep, and then he will take up his life again, just as he said he would. That's why the church reads this reading every year on the fourth Sunday of Easter, even though it's not about the resurrection. Because by rising from the dead, our good shepherd gathered us into this new flock of his forever. And later, when John sees heaven, this is what he'll see. Quote, I, John, had a vision of a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation, race, people, and tongue. They stood before the throne and before the Lamb, wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, end quote. That's an astonishing image of heaven from a Jewish perspective because all the covenant images of the Old Testament converge. All the nations promised to Abraham are there, surrounding the Passover lamb given to Moses, upon the throne of the forever kingdom promised to David. And all of it is delivered to us by Jesus Christ, killed and risen from the dead. What does that mean for us today in the 21st century? For those of us baptized into Christ's new kingdom, it means quite a bit. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. First, I think we need to stop and ask ourselves, why is Jesus calling us sheep to start with? Because Ezekiel did, sure, but that just moves the question elsewhere. Why did God, through Ezekiel, call us sheep? So this is a great time to skip over briefly to another shepherd gospel. John's treatment of the Good Shepherd is an extended analogy, and it might be better to ground ourselves in reality a little bit using Jesus' parable from Matthew 18, of which there's a longer version of the same story in Luke. Jesus says in Matthew, quote, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. End quote. That's what Jesus says. But I don't think that going after one lost sheep and leaving ninety-nine unguarded is a best practices approach to shepherding. A couple of facts here. First, the value of sheep in the ancient world was enormous. They were the lifeblood of the economy. Nearly everyone's livelihood was affected in some way by them. They provided milk and wool, but also meat and skins and horns. They even had eternal value, supplying the yearly Passover sacrifice. 
But sheep, then and now, were clueless. They are easily led and easily lost. As my own family visited a farm just a few weeks ago, a sheep died there in a minor accident. The owners said the sheep are like that. They aren't smart enough and don't have a survival instinct strong enough to survive without constant oversight and protection. Their usefulness and their cluelessness make them perfect representatives of us. We, too, are highly valuable losers. One old Bible commentary I have says that when a sheep gets separated from its flock and is lost, the sheep doesn't look for a way home. It just gives up. It lies down helpless. You can't call a sheep to come. You have to look for it. And when you find it, the sheep won't follow you back. You have to pick it up and carry it. The herding instinct is famously strong in sheep. A sheep, apart from its flock, is not an independent animal making its way in the world. It's a stressed, anxious animal in deadly peril. It's easy pickings for predators, since its only means of defense is to stay close to the herd. Often, a lost sheep will simply lie down, frozen with fear. This is the image of a soul without God and without a community, lost, alone, and helpless. Like sheep, our moral courage comes from our flock, and our direction and purpose comes from the shepherd leading us. Being on our own isn't empowering, it's enfeebling, putting us at the mercy of whatever comes along. Because human beings are herding animals too. Our souls are made to be in communion with others. Aristotle called us the social animal. In Genesis, God says it is not good for man to be alone. We are hardwired to be in community and only make sense embedded in relationships. When we go off by ourselves, we are in peril, stressed, anxious, and addicted to whatever will numb the pain of loneliness. But that's what sin is, a choice for selfishness that isolates us from others and thus from our deepest meaning. Pride, envy, anger, sloth, gluttony, and lust, they all turn us inward and begin the project of creating a world of our own. They never lead to happiness because the real world is God's and our soul finds its only consolation in the loving gift of ourselves to others, which is a participation in God's self-gift. So God goes out looking for us, combing the fields and trees, actively searching until he finds us. For the sinners of his time, that meant he sits and eats with them. For us, it means he reaches us through the church and feeds us with scripture and sacraments. Then, like the footprints in the sand story, he carries us back. St. Ambrose put it this way, The shoulders of Christ are the arms of the cross. There I lay down my sins. I rest on the neck of that noble yoke. End quote. Importantly, Jesus doesn't simply carry us to safety and set us up to be successful on our own, out of danger. In the story, he carries us back to the flock. He wants us to thrive the only way we can thrive, connected with others who are connected to him. When we are separated from the flock and lost, we're utterly helpless. All of our courage and strength is gone. On our own, we aren't just doing our own thing. We are helpless, alone, powerless, at the mercy of the wilds. So sheep are a great metaphor from ancient times of who we are. Their guardians, shepherds, are also a great metaphor for our leaders in the church. Because shepherds were also simultaneously vitally important 
and easily overlooked in ancient times, kind of like in the 21st century. But in ancient times, they ate simple food, worked outside in harsh weather with bad lodging, and had to be on the lookout for dangerous predators, lions, bears, and wolves. They also had to take care to count their sheep often and look out for the weak ones, expectant ewes, newborn lambs, and the sick. So to call pastors, bishops, and popes shepherds is also high praise and significant realism. A good shepherd has been put in charge of a flock that is often clueless and in danger. So a shepherd in the church should be always on his feet, tiring himself out, checking on his flock and attending to its needs. Always on the watch, careful for whoever and whatever might lead his flock into dangerous sins. And always ready to help, finding every opportunity to provide the soul-healing sacraments. Thank God this describes many of our pastors and bishops today. It was refreshing to hear from my old boss, Francis Mayer, in a talk he gave at Benedictine College, that he has interviewed hundreds of American priests and bishops, and that he was very impressed. He said that most of our shepherds are good men who are doing their best. But, as we all know, many are not. There's a great old story about St. John Paul II meeting with American bishops at one of their ad meetings. At lunch, the bishop closest to him was enthusiastically holding forth about invincible ignorance. Invincible ignorance is the name given to those who have no way of knowing Christ, but follow their consciences and seek him as best they can their whole lives. And this man was saying, isn't it true that even in our modern cities, a soul may be invincibly ignorant and never hear about Christ in an authentic way, and therefore may perhaps still be saved? He kept asking it over and over again, insistently. Finally, the Pope put down his spoon, and with the clank of his spoon, everything became quiet, and he said, Yes, a soul who has never heard about Christ in our modern cities may be invincibly ignorant and may still be saved. But then he added, But the bishop responsible for that ignorance, he will not be saved. We need shepherds who have the same kind of zeal for souls that actual shepherds had for sheep back in the day. We need shepherds who are willing to do more than just the minimum. Heck, you know what? We need shepherds who are willing to do the minimum. <laughs> shepherds who are willing to promote baptism. Do shepherds promote baptism? Do bishops promote baptism? I don't hear it if they do. Some even forbade baptism during COVID. We need shepherds who are willing to say that the five precepts of the church, the bare minimum of Catholicism, are important. I don't remember hearing that either from a bishop. But at any rate, we need shepherds who are even stronger than that. Shepherds who are sheep among wolves. Because in Matthew 10, Jesus says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear testimony before them. For the apostles, this was literally true. And for Christians in many parts of the world, it remains literally true. They're being dragged before magistrates and condemned. For us in America, facing the wolves might mean healing the materially, emotionally, or spiritually crippled around us and doing it at a cost, since not only do we face the wolves of the world, but, as St. Gregory the Great put it, 
There's another wolf that ceaselessly, every day, tears apart minds and souls, not bodies. When the wolf comes, the empty lies and vicious values of the world, it is our job to fight for our vulnerable friends and families to the death. We are hirelings if we look out for ourselves instead, our material goods, but also our personal, political, or moral agendas, more than the sheep. To be concrete, if the wolves of loneliness, hopelessness, and faithlessness are attacking my family and friends, and I spend my time posting about politics and complaining about the failings of church leaders or overindulging my bad habits, I am acting like a hireling who doesn't care about the sheep as much as I care about myself. And there is ultimately one source of life and light for us, the Good Shepherd, the True Shepherd. And consider how good the Good Shepherd truly is. Astonishingly good. Jesus said, I am the Good Shepherd, and I know mine, and mine know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. No matter how you look at the universe, that's an astonishing thing for the second person of the Trinity to say. It's astonishing if you think of the creation story from Genesis. It's also astonishing if you watch the docuseries Cosmos and consider all the spinning planets, distant stars, and immense galaxies in our observable universe as only a small part of an infinite ocean of other universes, universe upon universe, worlds without end. That the being capable of creating and sustaining all of this should care about each of us is counterintuitive at best. But we believe that not only does God notice us, he comes to save us. As St. Peter put it, There is no salvation through anyone else, nor is there any other name under heaven given to the human race by which we are saved. The way of the universe is harsh and cold. Look at any nature documentary, and you see it. Most newly hatched sea turtles never make it to the water. Most of those who do get eaten when they're young. The same logic affects species after species. Even human beings live lives of obscurity headed toward destruction. But God breaks into the middle of a harsh world to shepherd those he has called out of darkness. He pursues us and gathers us. Ninety-nine turtles fleeing their pursuers might die for one to barely escape. But the good shepherd will leave ninety-nine behind to keep just one of us from being lost. But it gets even more amazing. Not only does he come to save us, he offers himself in our place. I am the good shepherd, says Jesus. A good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. At the crucifixion, the apostles saw exactly what Jesus meant when he said that. He didn't just stand before the wolf that came to devour them. He fed himself to the wolf so that it would leave us alone. And he did it even as we rejected him. And he didn't just save us from destruction. He made us like himself. As St. John would describe it, quote, Beloved, we are God's children now. What we shall be has not yet been revealed. We do know that when it is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This almighty God, the one who orders the universe, the one who creates every molecule and every supernova, not only saves us, not only sacrifices himself for us, he makes us his children. He makes us like him. As astonishing as that is, we know it makes sense. We were made with longings that will settle for nothing less than everything. John says we cannot understand what our life in God will be like. Pope Benedict describes it as, quote, plunging into the ocean of infinite love, in which we are simply overwhelmed with joy. And that's the most astonishing thing. Jesus goes one step further. The shepherd 
becomes the lamb. Not only does the Lord of the galaxies notice us, not only does he save us, not only does the good shepherd die for us, not only does he make us his children, he becomes a lamb for us. More than that, the priest holds up the host that is now the real presence of Jesus Christ and says, Behold the Lamb of God, behold him who takes away the sins of the world. End quote. And blessed are those who are called by the shepherd. Blessed are those who are called to the supper of the Lamb. At Mass, we actually unite ourselves with the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the Good Shepherd. As St. Gregory the Great put it, quote, The Good Shepherd has laid down his life for his sheep in order to change his body and blood into a sacrament for us and to satisfy the sheep he had redeemed with his own body as food, end quote. After that, he says, quote, The mold that is to form us is there. The first thing we are to do is devote our external goods to his sheep in the works of mercy. Then, if it is necessary, we are to offer even our death for those same sheep, end quote. So that's it. The mold and the form is there. What exactly does the mold and the form look like? Well, I can sum up what the mold and the form looks like in three words because good shepherd turns out to be shorthand for prophet, priest, and king. Jesus says so in the gospel. First he says, my sheep hear my voice, which makes him the ultimate prophet. Next he says, I give them eternal life, making himself the eternal high priest. Then he says, no one can take them out of my hand. He says, as our great protector king. You probably have an image in your house of this, actually, Every family has or should have the catechism in their home. So each family should have the catechism logo, which is a fascinating image of the Good Shepherd. The catechism itself describes that image like this, quote, The design of the logo is adapted from a Christian tombstone in the catacombs in Rome, which dates from the end of the 3rd century AD. This pastoral image of pagan origin was used by Christians to symbolize the rest, and the happiness that the soul of the departed finds in eternal life. This image also suggests certain characteristic aspects of this catechism. Christ, the Good Shepherd, who leads and protects his faithful by his authority, draws them by the melodious symphony of the truth, and makes them lie down in the shade of the tree of life, the redeeming cross, which opens paradise. End quote. So he has the authority, truth, and leads us to paradise. That makes him king, prophet, and priest. And with that catechism in hand, we're all supposed to be prophets, priests, and kings. Because each of us in baptism is anointed to become what Jesus is, prophet, priest, and king. The catechism says that when we are anointed with sacred chrism, quote, the newly baptized has become a Christian, that is, one anointed by the Holy Spirit, incorporated into Christ, who is anointed priest, prophet, and king, end quote. So this is a kind of paradox. Our job is to be both sheep and shepherds, leaders who do what they're told. I like to think that makes us like a border collie who is being obedient to the master while corralling the sheep according to his commands. Check YouTube for border collies and you'll see what I mean. So how are we good sheep? Jesus gives us the test we have to pass. Do we hear his voice? And what is the voice of the shepherd, asks St. Augustine. He answers, quote, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name throughout all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. There is the voice of the shepherd. Recognize it and follow if you are a sheep, End quote. 
Then we need to test to see if we are good shepherds, good border collies, good prophets, priests, and kings acting on behalf of the one shepherd. The questions there might be, are we other Christs? Jesus Christ is the true shepherd who assures us that he, at least, stands at the ready to seek us and serve us. I know that you have some shepherds who let you down, he is saying, but do not be afraid. I am at your side. He is the new David, a greater version of the shepherd David who said in the Old Testament, quote, Whenever a lion or bear came to carry off a sheep from the flock, I would chase after it, attack it, and snatch the prey from its mouth. If it attacked me, I would seize it by the throat, strike it, and kill it. End quote. That's what the standard is for our shepherds, to hurl themselves with Christ at whatever will harm the flock. They also need to speak Christ's words to their flock, not their own, knowing that, quote, the sheep follow him because they recognize his voice, end quote. In fact, says St. Augustine, quote, not only let him preach the true Christ, but seek Christ's glory, not his own. For many, by seeking their own glory, have scattered Christ's sheep instead of gathering them, end quote. But for Jesus himself, the standard is infinitely higher. Amen, amen, I say to you, I am the gate for the sheep, he says. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. That's quite a statement. It's the same kind of language he used for, I am the bread of life and I am the light of the world. What does it mean that Jesus is the gate? If he is the sheep gate, then our only way to safety is through him, by him, and in him. As Vatican II put it in Lumen Gentium, the church is a sheepfold whose one and indispensable door is Christ. End quote. St. Augustine says it works like this, quote, Christ's sheepfold is the Catholic church, and Christ the Lord is a low gateway. He who enters by this gateway must humble himself, that he may be able to enter without hitting his head. But he that humbles not, but exalts himself, wishes to climb over the wall, and he that climbs over the wall is exalted only to fall. A shepherd who thinks he knows better than Jesus and can improve on Christ's enduring truths is no shepherd at all, but a pied piper trying to lead the sheep astray. Jesus is both a model and corrective to our pastors and bishops, according to the Second Vatican Council. Lumen Gentium says the church is, quote, a flock of which God himself foretold he would be the shepherd, and whose sheep, although ruled by human shepherds, are nevertheless continuously led and nourished by Christ himself, the good shepherd and the prince of the shepherds, who gave his life for the sheep, end quote. St. Peter, the first shepherd, put it like this, quote, By his wounds you have been healed, for you had gone astray like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. End quote. In describing himself as the good shepherd, Jesus also says he has come to give us life and give it abundantly. We know what that means by heart. Everyone's favorite psalm is a psalm about the good shepherd. Without even intending to, many of us have memorized its description of abundant life. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In verdant pastures he gives me repose. Even though I walk in the dark valley, I fear no evil, for you are at my side. You spread the table before me in the sight of my foes. 
You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Thank you, Lord, for being our true shepherd. We have followed your extraordinary story from the beginning. You said, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And when things got hard for your apostles, you said, Do not be afraid any longer, little flock, for your father is pleased to give you the kingdom. The night is dark and there are wolves all around us, but you are right by us, and if we follow, we won't just be safe. You will take us from the valley of our fears onto the mountain of victory as we continue to follow your extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about the extraordinary story.